welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Today, we find ourselves in the middle of a series on repentance, and here's a brief summary of what we've found so far. We gave two distortions of repentance initially that we need to be on the lookout for. Uh, They were not exhaustive, uh, but just two uh, big ones that I see today. And uh, the first one was the distortion that teaches that repentance is simply an act of the human will. Uh, It failed to understand the necessity of divine intervention prior to repentance. And the second distortion, the one that we spent more time on, was what I termed weaponized repentance. We said this was judgment disguised as repentance, and so uh, we wanted to avoid those two distortions. And then last week, we defined repentance, uh, and in the, the, the um, definition, there was one important thing that we spent time discussing, and that is the danger of a feigned sorrow. Uh, we said this, Worldly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your idolatrous, self-centered worship. Godly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your fellowship with your loving Heavenly Father. And then finally, we defined repentance as this. We said biblical repentance is a change of mind regarding sin, judgment, and God's holiness, which affects or afflicts the heart in sorrow and results in a turning away from wickedness. Now, before we get to today's topic... I do want to do uh, just one more thing. And uh, on church on Sunday, uh, I was asked a question about last week's podcast. And um, the question related to uh, the verse uh, or the verses Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. And the question was, uh, because I brought in some Greek on that one, how is it that we can understand that if uh, we don't know Greek and we weren't aware of those things? So let me read the verses and uh, maybe kind of wrap this up a little bit before we get into the topic for today. So Hebrews 12, 15 to 17 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. I said that in the Greek, the word it goes grammatically with the word blessing instead of repent. So probably, I'm guessing, if you just read this without understanding maybe the context of it, I think you would maybe on on just the first time think that the verse means this, and I'm just going to add the word repentance in to replace the word it. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought the repentance with tears. Uh, That's not what it's saying, but I think that's how most people hear it the first time. And so you you read it thinking that, and you say, boy, God was harsh for not forgiving someone who was repenting. That's not what it's saying, Uh, and I'm not going to go into all of it that I went into last week, but basically it's saying this instead, for you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. Um, So the question on Sunday related to the fact that I brought up the Greek and how, um, you know, how do you figure this out if you don't know Greek? 
Um, and the first thing I want to say is I'm not implying that only people who have studied Greek can understand Scripture. I don't think that's true at all. So my advice from Sunday was that since we have a rich privilege as English-speaking Christians with all of the vast um, uh, amount of, of uh, English translations available to us, um, we should be consulting multiple translations to see how other author or other um, translators are rendering these words. So I looked on Sunday, uh, and I found half a dozen uh, or so translations, uh, and I looked at the NIV, and the NIV says this, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So the NIV, um, being a a slight paraphrase, uh, doesn't give a literal translation here, doesn't translate it as the pronoun it, it actually uh, paraphrases that by putting the word blessing in there. Um, so it says, he sought the blessing with tears. It conveys accurately that Esau was not seeking the repentance. He was seeking the blessing. And I think that's good. Um, and I think that, uh, I think it's good that the NIV did that. And I think if you put your English Bible side by side, uh, it can help you to see the, the connection and get an idea for the original meaning. Um, so then as I was preparing today, I decided, let me do a little bit more of an extensive look. And I looked at Logos, which I I can't remember. I probably have 30, 40, 50 English translations. Um, so there's not many that, that will do this, but I found four translations in my library uh, that translate it like the NIV. So the, the NIV, obviously... The NRSV, uh, the the Net Bible, and then the Nabri or Nabra, uh, which interestingly enough is uh, a Catholic uh, translation for what's what that's worth. Um, so those four translations <clears throat> um, paraphrase it, and instead of saying he sought it with tears, they say he sought the blessing with tears, so that the connection is is made and understood that. Esau was not rejected because he was repenting. He was rejected because he wasn't repenting, actually. He was seeking the blessing. Um, and that helps to, I think, clarify what's going on there. Um, so the point of this is just to say that when we do come across passages that we might be confused by, um, go ahead and look it up in another English translation. There's enough tools today, uh, digitally speaking, where you can go online even and just for free see um, these these translations side by side. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. I'll give you an example, actually, of one that I came across that I think is a really bad translation. It's the NLT, the New Living Translation. And it says, um, it says, you know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. That's a really bad translation of this verse um, because it makes it sound like, first of all, it's it's a, a paraphrase and it's it paraphrased it very poorly. It makes it sound, when it says it was too late for repentance, it's making it sound like Esau was trying to repent. Like I'm really seeking repentance, but you know, it's too late. God's not going to, you know, let me repent anymore, even though I, I really am repenting. Um, that's obviously not the idea at all. The idea is not 
that Esau was seeking the repentance, but just happened to do it too late. The idea is that Esau was was seeking the wrong thing altogether. He wasn't repenting. He was seeking the blessing. Um, and that's why he was rejected. So hopefully that maybe wraps up a little bit from uh, last week and gives some uh, context um, for for that. So moving on, um, let's talk about repentance as uh, a gift from God. So I kind of ended with this a little bit last week, and we're not going to get fully through this. I kind of mainly want to deal with some objections today and then Lord willing establish it a little bit more next week. Um, but I just want to start off with uh, the three main verses for this. Acts 5.31 says, God exalted him, of course it's Christ, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we have this phrase, uh, repentance is connected with this, this word give, so he gives repentance. 2 Timothy 2.24-26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. He may perhaps grant them repentance. So you have giving repentance, granting repentance, and then Acts 11.18 says, They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. So these are the three New Testament passages that use this word like gift or give uh, to refer to repentance. Now, there's a bunch of other data, and uh, Lord willing, I'll maybe hit on some of that next week. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you one Old Testament verse um, to show that it's, there, it's more than just these three verses. But Lamentations 1.13, for instance, says, um, From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend, he spread a net for my feet, he turned me back. So uh, the writer of Lamentations is crediting the Lord with turning him back, which is another way of talking about repentance, to turn back. Um, and there's several other verses along the same lines. But for today, I'm just hitting on these verses that talk about giving or granting repentance. Um, so I want to talk first about Geisler. Uh, Geisler in his Systematic Theology uh, is talking about Acts 5.31, which, remember, 5.31 is the one that says um, to give repentance to Israel. So, Geisler says, quote, Repentance itself is not the gift of God. The opportunity to repent is his gift, end quote. So, Geisler is saying uh, Acts 5.31 does not mean that uh, God gives repentance. It means that God gives an opportunity to repent. Um, so I want to deal with this objection briefly here. <clears throat> the question would be then, based on what Geisler is saying, is is repentance a gift or is the opportunity the gift? Which one is it? Um, and I think right out of the gate, you know, we have the Bible would seem to indicate that it's repentance that's the gift. And that's, of course, the, the, the position I'm going to take here. Um, but is Geisler correct in saying that it's the opportunity um, is there anything that, that he has there? Um, here's, I think, the problem with this, and that is that Geisler is saying, in addition to this, that the gift is universal. Um, so when Geisler says that the opportunity to repent is the gift, he's also saying 
that this gift is universal. So understand it from his perspective. What he's saying is, um, you know, God just gives this gift of the opportunity to repentance to all people. And then those people in their own autonomous free will can choose to accept or reject that. Um, and it's just the opportunity has been made available to all, presumably uh, out of out of fairness. Um, the problem is when you put that Acts 5.31 text next to the Timothy text, it really rules that out as a possibility because it says that God may perhaps grant them repentance. He may perhaps grant them repentance. In other words, this gift, whatever the gift is, is not universal. I mean, what does it mean to say that God may perhaps grant, but to also say that he may perhaps not grant? Um, So this is where it gets perhaps maybe even a little bit uncomfortable for some of us listening to this. Um, If Acts 5.31 and 2 Timothy 2 are both true, and I would contend that they are, then we must conclude that repentance itself is a gift from God that he does not give to everyone. This gift that is being given is not given universally. Not everybody is a recipient of this gift of repentance. And so I would disagree with Geisler and say that the gift is not the opportunity because he really has to impose it on the text. There's nothing contextually that would give us that clue. I would say that the gift is repentance itself, simply what the text says. And so for those of us who uh, believe in the doctrine of election, uh, this obviously makes sense. Um, If God is sovereign over election, then he is certainly sovereign over the components of it and sovereign over the parts. If If he's sovereign over the whole, then he's sovereign over the parts. If he's sovereign over salvation, then he's sovereign over all the little pieces that have to fit together in order to make that salvation happen. Um, and so this is the first objection to the idea of repentance as a gift. The second one I did look at briefly before, but I'll look at it again here a little bit more. Um, in, uh, in in the, uh, the book's Life in the Spirit by Thomas Odin, he says this, quote, were it strictly a matter of the spirit overpowering the human will, then there would be no call to any duty of repentance as in scripture, repent and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Such an appeal assumes that the hearer may or may not decide to repent, end quote. So here's what he's saying. He believes that the divine command to repent presumes human ability. If God is commanding you to do something, then we will assume that that means you can do it. Um, So his argument is, if God commands it, then we can do it. But this actually, interestingly enough, resurrects a centuries-old debate between, of course, Pelagius and Augustine. And in his letter to Demetrius, Pelagius writes this, he says, quote, God has not willed to command anything impossible, end quote. So Pelagius is, is arguing, and he believes that the presence of demi- divine commands presuppose human ability. He was actually bothered by Augustine's famous line, 
which was, quote, grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt, end quote. So Augustine believed that our human inability to obey necessitated divine grace. I need God's grace to obey. That's what Augustine was arguing. Pelagius believed that divine grace was unnecessary because of innate human ability. Well, God commanded it, so obviously we must be able to do it without any additional help. Um, This debate also resurfaced during the Protestant Reformation between Martin Luther and Erasmus, and obviously it's something that we're still debating today. So the question is this, in in order to simplify it, if God says in the Bible, pick something, thou shall not steal, am I able to obey that command apart from divine assistance? Now, Pelagius would say yes, otherwise it it would be unfair for God to command it. It's not fair for God to tell me to do something that I can't do. And Augustine would say, no, God must grant the ability to obey in order that we will obey. We need divine assistance. And the biblical data, uh, in order to kind of shorten this conversation here, is on Augustine's side. Let me just give you a couple of verses. In Jeremiah 13, 23, we read this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Human beings can no more do good than they can change the color of their skin, according to Jeremiah 13, 23. Jesus says, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul touches on human inability in Romans 7, 18, when he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We don't have innate ability. We need God's grace to obey his commands. And of course, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, applies this doctrine of human inability to the doctrine of repentance when he says, quote, the same badness which makes us need repentance makes us unable to do it, end quote. And of course, this is how we ended the podcast last time. And we have to remember that we are unable to do anything apart from divine grace, including repent. You cannot infer human ability from divine commands. You cannot repent apart from divine grace. You cannot turn unless you are turned. Change doesn't come from within. It comes from without. And for this, we desperately need Christ. And we'll pick up on this next time. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church Norville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.